mesmo sentido. Welcome back to the AIAC podcast. My name is William Shorkey and you are listening to Africa as a country's regular destination for analysis of current affairs, culture and sports on the African continent and its diaspora from the left. In our last episode, we had a conversation with Mahide Sarekbaran on the crisis engulfing Sudan. If you missed that, you can listen back wherever you listen to your podcasts and make sure to subscribe for latest episodes. This week, we're talking about Sierra Leone. On June 24, Sierra Leone will elect a new president and parliament, its fifth election since its devastating 10-year civil war ended in 2002. The incumbent, Julius Madabio of the Sierra Leone People's Party, is seeking re-election in a two-horse race against Samura Kamara of the All People's Congress. The contest is a rematch of the 2018 vote when Bio won 51.81% of the vote compared to Kamara's 48.19. Like the rest of the continent, the country is facing a cost-of-living crisis exacerbated by global economic shocks, chief among them the war in Ukraine. In August 2022, cost-of-living protests took place in Freetown, Makeni and Kamakwe, which triggered a crackdown from the state and in which 20 people were killed. When Bio came to power in 2018, having succeeded APC President Ernst Koroma, he promised to undo the legacy of heavy-handedness and intolerance to criticism that Koroma's presidency became associated with. Now, many Sierra Leoneans are seeing more of the same. Ahead of the elections, restrictions and gatherings have been enforced, as well as a change to the voting system, which many are unsure of and are confused by. Kamara is also facing corruption charges originating from his time as foreign minister under Koroma, and the glacial pace through which the case is moving through the courts has resulted in suspicions that Bio is weaponizing the state apparatus to frustrate Kamara's candidacy. This week on the podcast, we are joined by Sierra Leonean and American author Ishmael Bia to discuss the elections. Does Kamara represent much of a difference to Bio? How strong are Sierra Leone's ethnic divisions which inform most voting preferences? And what of the youth who led the country's cost of livings protests? Ishmael, born in Sierra Leone, is a New York Times bestselling author of A Long Way Gone, Memoirs of a Boy Soldier, and Radiance of Tomorrow, a novel. And his latest novel, Little Family, was released in 2020. Music producer, DJ, writer, cultural activist, and my colleague and AIC Director of Operations, Boy Mataka, also joins us as a special guest. So here is our interview with Ishmael on Sierra Leone's elections. Enjoy. So Ishmael, welcome back on the podcast and Boima, it's, it's great to have you here as a guest host. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having us. So Thank I mean, you. Ishmael, yeah, it's, 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 it's our pleasure. Um, Many, many people aren't really following, but Sierra Leone is having its elections later this month on the 24th of June. Um, maybe, I, I suppose a good place to start is, is to ask why you think there hasn't really been a lot of coverage of these elections. I guess the, the image of Sierra Leone that's projected um, internationally is of a place where, you know, nothing is really happening, things are, are going well, and there's not really much need to, to fret about what's ongoing in the country. But this this election is, is significant for, for reasons you've been pointing out uh, online. Could you tell us a bit about 
what the stakes are? Well, the, the stakes are very high, but as you said very much, whenever we have certain uh, governments in power in Sierra Leone, they have a way of uh, using information so the outside world sees one thing while what the reality is on the ground is completely different. And so why perhaps we haven't had media coming here is because of that. Uh, the current government that's in power is very good at speaking the language that the international community wants to hear. They have the terminology and everything. So it looks as if this is an idyllic place where there is a sort of, uh, the, the power is shared among people, there's freedom of speech that um, is in an idyllic place where everything is functioning and therefore they would need to do another term to make sure that they continue on the remarkable strides that they've made in building this country. None of those things are true. Uh, when you step outside of your house, you see people are very desperate, perhaps more dire than they used to be. And I'm talking about dire before the war uh, is what's going on. But that is completely glossed over. And the journalists they've managed to have come cover the country, sort of uh, presented them or given them a tour, you know, avoiding all the other spaces that you can see this. And so they've gone out to write very uh, remarkable articles where people live in here and be like, you know, are they talking about Sierra Leone? Because this is not where we live. This is where we live, where we have daily blackouts, uh, where they say we're, we're a country moving towards prosperity, but we don't even have electricity. How can we move towards prosperity? It's not functional at all. If you're lucky, you live in a neighborhood where uh, in a week, maybe you get three, four light at times, light comes your way. If you live in the eastern part of more marginalized areas, you have places where in a month people don't have light. So young people can't even charge their phone to connect to the world. You know, mm -hmm. So hence, they can also criticize what's going on. It's also become a place where there's no freedom of speech. The only freedom of speech is allowed if you praise the government. If you're mm -hmm. critical towards the government, which is not even to say that they're doing saying that where well, policies are not only good on paper, you, they have to be enacted. If you have any critical thinking, critical thought against government, you're considered somebody who's inciting violence. And therefore you could be arrested and laws have been put in place to do that. So it's a country where it's been praised for democracy for moving forward because they speak this language to the outside world. Uh, we have some new guys in power who are very good at it. And then they've thought the older folks, you know, the old guys who kind of continue doing the mandates to speak that language. So we have these things that they say, oh, yeah, we're moving, we're scaling up, we're doing this. But you mean, wait a minute, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, on the ground, you don't see that. You see extreme desperation on the ground. You know, can I can I ask just a little with a little context of the political um, kind of atmosphere that this government has actually dealt with um, massive protests about cost of living, which have been reflected in other parts of West Africa, like specifically Senegal, where the youth have taken to the streets and there's been violence um, between police and protesters. Can you talk a little bit about that context, how the government has dealt with it? Um, and then how, is it different than other situations in the past with, with political kind of... Um, violence between parties or, or groups of young people of different parties? Well, before the, the protest that happened here in Sierra Leone that then turned violent, um, we had a tanker, a fuel crisis, right, where a fuel tanker hits a guy, you know, fell down, people went to collect the gas, and then it exploded. Now, when that happened, some of us were more intelligent and critical, asked a few questions that were not allowed. 
basically the, the, the emotional sentiment of the population was drawn out of them to say that this is a time we must come together, we must play the blame game so that we will not ask certain questions. You already knew this was coming. Why is there a country where a fuel tanker and the truck that has no brakes can be allowed to be on the streets at a certain time of hour when it's rush hour? When you know we've had incidences like this before, it means that there's no real functionality going on. Secondly, when that fuel tanker falls down and fuel is leaking out of it, what makes the population find buckets and other things to go scoop up the fuel so that they can sell it to make money? It already shows their lives of dire, dire desperation. That's when you can do that, ignoring the possibility of danger. Because you're desperate, you're almost at the brink of dying because your life doesn't mean anything. So you want to get what you can for that day, right? Because we have a lot of youth who don't have anything. And yet there's this idea that's been sold that we have uh, this country that has a policy of uh, human capital development, right? Uh, but where well, the humans are there, but there's no capital or development being put towards them. That's why they will go. And then when that fear, but also where were the police to make sure that when the fear tanker falls, to make sure that the population doesn't go near it to quarantine the area, the response rate was slow. But we have a national disaster response body that has money that was gotten from the World Bank to be able to respond to such situations. They were nowhere to be found. Even when people were burned, the ones that survived, that were taken to the hospitals, the Chinese donated beds, hospital beds. And this was being hailed in the country. As a country that's been, that's been putting ourselves out as we're developing, we don't even have beds for when our citizens go through such kind of disaster. We're already asking for aid money, right? So nobody asks that question. For, for furthermore, as, as this finished, nobody asked those questions. It then came to when the country had become so desperate where basically the prices of goods were going up, people's salary remained the same. Now, economic crisis is a global phenomenon following COVID and then following the, uh, the war in Ukraine and Russia and all of these things, we're aware of that. But what happened even before that, there was already a neglect in society. So these things just even added more to the burden. So there was nothing being done, but yet we live in a very small country where you see that the majority of the population is not doing well. Their salaries remain the same. The prices of goods are going up. There's no subsidies being done, but the ministers and people in government are doing fantastically well. Mm -hmm. It's a small country. You can see night and day. So then when people protested, instead of the government saying, that, you know, this is true, we could do better, they were met by the police with violence, reacting to them. And then they reacted also to protect themselves. Now, when you look at other countries like Kenya, before Senegal, you had Kenya had also protests. When their people protested, they tried to quell the situation down and deal with it. In Senegal, it's happening now. Now, when the president of this country returned, he labeled the protesters, terrorists, and insurrectionists. Mm -hmm. So this was a big red flag because people have the right to protest. Now, the way it turned out, nobody wanted it to turn out that way. But if they, so basically they were using this language also to buy into the idea of what the U.S. would aid them into combating a possibility of insurrectionists and terrorists as a threat towards democracy. When the once important, uh, you know, thing of democracy is freedom of speech and also people's right to protest. So when you sit on that, and then when, when that happened, the president only had a state funeral for the police who were killed during that time but not the citizens who were killed. So then you begin to answer yourself the question, well, who is the president leading? The police or the rest of the population in the country, which includes the police and the civilians. 
So this is the difference between what's happening in Senegal, in Kenya, and in other parts of the world, people are protesting because of the rising uh, cost of living. The governments are not meeting them by naming them terrorists and insurrectionists. They are saying that, yes, this is a real problem. It's getting out of hand. We need to find a way to deal with it. They are not casting them out, saying that your opinions, your voices, your concerns don't matter. This is already what's been going on. It just got exacerbated. So that's the difference. Mm -hmm. yeah. Could you could you tell us a little bit about about the president uh, Julius Mada Bio? He came to power in 2018, uh, defeated what was then the incumbent All People's Congress, um, and it's actually it wasn't his first stint uh, as the head of state in the 1990s. He was in power for a brief spell of time as part of the military junta government. Uh, when when he came into power in 2018. What was his platform? What was he promising the Sierra Leonean people? As you've alluded to just now, you mentioned prosperity and development. And could you contrast that with what his track record has actually been? What has been sort of the economic philosophy through which he's governed? Uh, what has his tenure in power been like? And heading into this election, is he sort of promising more of the same, continuing the project that he would have inaugurated in 2018, or is he trying to present something different? Well, first of all, I'm glad that you mentioned the context of who uh, the current president is of Sierra Leone, Julius Madabio, before he came into power, when he was vying to be the fiabliara of the Sierra Leone People's Party, a lot of us were actually for him because when he was younger, they took power and he actually gave power back for democracy to take root in this country. So people thought, why well, this is the perfect fellow. I was one of those people very much so thinking that this is the person that's going to change this country, the direction of it, that's going to bring real policies in this country, make it function, build the economy and all of these things because he has shown us once what he could do for the brief amount of time that he was in power. You know, And so everybody was excited for that. Now, he came into power and everything completely changed. Um, all those promises, I mean, before he came into power, he would openly say that the country was rotten, that it was broken. People have the right not to trust government because government had never done anything for them to trust it. What he's seen over the years, he vocally said these things out in public. And people said, for once, somebody is saying these things, so maybe they're in a position to address them. And when he came into power, he had made all these promises. He's somebody who talks and does it. And he's going to build this, change this, move things around, all of these things. One of them was that they're going to have a free education system, which they did, but it fell short. I don't know if you read the New York Times article that Nicholas Christoph did recently. Uh, it's not what they are selling it to be to the international community. So he came into power. I was hopeful. I was one of the people running around the world, chiming his bells to people, thinking that this is the guy we have. I truly believe that. But then I began to also look at who he surrounded himself with and the policies that he was somehow trying to put in place. And I realized that, well, he's more of the same. You know, very quickly that became evident that he's more of the same. Maybe he thought he saw that he couldn't do much more than he thought he could, or maybe he's always been that way and power truly just exposed who he'd always been. But he became just uh, surround himself with people who just talk and they don't know how to do anything. And also, most importantly, they don't want anybody to question what they're doing. So they say they work for us. We are the citizens of Sierra Leone. 
but yet they get to decide that the work they're doing, the quality of it and the impact of it. We don't get to see anything, right? So, which is very interesting, right? They call themselves the best civil servants. There's nothing civil about them and they don't even behave like serving anybody, right? So, so you began to see that, yes, on paper, they had all these ideas that they were going to do, how they were going to change the economy, move things around, education, how they were going to make Syria self-sustainable in terms of feeding itself. All of these things sounded wonderful, but the implementation is not there. And that's what they're forgetting, that policies is not about what you write on paper. It's actually how you make them work, come into fruition. So they're busy glorifying what they've written on paper rather than actually doing the job. So it's changed completely. Now, as we go into the next election, it's promising that it needs five more years to finish what he's started. But I'll give you one thing. If you ask any Sierra Leonean who is truly honest, who is not a foot soldier for the political party, which we have a lot of, who just basically stick their head in the sand and ignore anything that would be that anybody says critical about their party, right? But then if you say it, it means that you're with the others or you don't love this country, you know, that's what it's become, you know? Rather than listen to intelligent, critical voices really in the country, it's become that if you have one, it means that, like I said earlier, trying to incite violence or you don't love the SFDP. In the context of Sierra Leone, I'm Mende. I come from the South. I'm supposed to be a, a fan of the SFDP and undyingly supporting them for whatever they do, but I'm an intelligent human being. So I don't follow people because they come from my part of the country. They're ruining a country, you know, mm-hmm. this is what they're doing. So going forward now, what he's trying to show people is that give me another five years to continue the path to prosperity that I've already started. But in the past, in the history of this country, everybody who's come in power, the first five years, they've at least tried to do something, even if not much, right? Very little. And then the second term, then they just go off the rails because they know that they will be voted it again. But this particular government, the first five years, they've actually done worse than, we've regressed as a country. We Can- now, our, our system, our power, just to have electricity to do work is completely abysmal. Now, yeah, they've built and renovated an airport. They've done a few things. There's also, they haven't done continuity of government. When you come into power, you're not going to undo what the current party did because they are not you. You will continue. Continuity is what makes government work. Not starting things so you can put your name on them only. Can can I ask a question just about, um, you mentioned previous governments in the first five years have tried something. So can you uh speak to a little bit what is the general philosophy around development um in Sierra Leone so if you if you say we're doing something what is that something um how, what um kind of tactics and modes do they use is it like through foreign investment is it through um state directed investment is it partnerships with people like um EU China these kind of things what what is doing something in Sierra Leone? We're doing something in Sierra Leone is all the above. And actually, majority, we're an aid-dependent country. That's always been the case. We've never really been able to do many things on our own. you know. And the reason why this has been the case is because it feeds directly into corruption. When you receive aid money, you can kind of spend it the way you want and make up receipts and things like that, right? Or take, you know, and then you don't have to be held accountable by uh, your people because it's not necessarily state money. And state money is used sometimes, but not ne- mostly to pay government officials, you know, whatever little of is left. And then they also take from the coffers of... So what, when he's been in power, he's done things with the EU, 
He's done things as previous government has done. He's done things with China, obviously. He's done things with, um, with various private investors who come to build things like that, you know? And, but one of the things he's done with the EU was to finish certain bridges. And these were projects that had already started in the previous government, but obviously they finish it and they take the, you know, the, the glory, which is okay. That's how governments are. Nobody's saying that. So some roads were finished, some roads were made. But when you look up at, at what they're doing from the local coffers of the government's money, which is to build roads, for example, in the capital city, they are basically rebuilding roads that don't need to be rebuilt so that people can see that they are at work, which again is, is, is sort of like, for example, the main roads in Freetown, you see that they are made and they are remaking them now. Mm -hmm. But what the problem is, is the roads that go off the main roads into the certain neighborhoods that are not made. So they are not doing much of that, right? So uh, there's agricultural uh, infrastructure that was supposed to be developed. We got things that came from China. Uh, we had people traveling to Vietnam to try and learn about how to grow rice. We're a country that knew how to grow rice from before. We, we didn't need to go to Vietnam to learn. We just need to hire people and create industry around it. So like I said, they know how to talk, how to say we're collecting information and doing all of these things. But, and also if you look at it before they tried to do a, a, the statistics, part of the country tried to count people. People refused to be counted because they said this, we've done this several times and it doesn't yield to any policy to change our lives. So we're not gonna, you know. So that was a disaster. And so basically, yes, they've tried to do it was one of the flagship, the things that they really praise that they've done very well is the education system. They say that they've improved the education system in Sierra Leone by having a free um, quality education where primary school and secondary school kids don't pay school fees anymore. Yes, it sounds good on paper, but there are still kids being flocked in certain schools, so they pay the school fees because the policy hasn't been put in place. So maybe in the capital city, in the vicinity of the uh, parliament and the government, those schools don't do that, but right outside of that, kids are still paying. And also when you look at school fees is not the most expensive part of going to school in a place like Sierra Leone. What is more expensive is the uniform, the shoes, the books, and to get to school and come back and what you eat. So they're actually covering the least expensive part of going to school. But again, the way they present it to the world is that we've done this remarkable thing. Now, when Nicola Cristo, the New York Times reporter was here, he saw that because he went up country and he saw people still being flopped, even though they've said they've banned corporal punishment in school because they're not following up on it. They're just saying it on paper. So he said that, but then, his uh, article, the headline of it was misleading. He basically said Sierra Leone is at the forefront of an education revolution, right? But then when you read the article, it says otherwise. So you have a lot of journalists coming and giving these misleading titles, but then here's what it's, what, where it's, 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 um, it's, it's sort of harming the population cry for, for help that is not heard. When he does something like that, the minister spin that part in the first paragraph on their tweets, on their Instagrams. So they say, well, you see the New York Times endorsed us that we're doing remarkable because most of the population does not have money to subscribe to New York Times. So they can read the full article. So it's very deliberate that they're doing. But some of us can read it. So then we go and pin all parts of the tweet because freedom of information, should, people should know what's going on so they can make their own decisions. But they're, they're taking things like that and saying, this is what's going on. They said they're investing in tourism, for example. So they build a new airport and they did these things. But the taxes are so high, you know, 
When you buy a ticket, you still have to pay $25 to leave and come inside Sierra Leone, even though there's a security tax already added to your, uh, to your ticket. There's a cost. If you break down the cost of your ticket, you see it's already there. But they are taking one that you pay to a website before you can travel. It doesn't matter whether you're Sierra Leone or not. You have to pay that. So most people are not coming because that's a burden for them. They can go to Senegal where they don't have to do that. The visas are expensive. Then there's a way how you get from the airport into the city that's very expensive. $45 and it keeps going up, right? So even if you're in New York City, the security tax you pay to get into JFK is less. It's more in Sierra Leone where you don't need all the things to, for security. So even when they say they're improving that sector, they're putting things in place to make money through corruption that's then hindering whatever development they say they're doing. The other part that I want to I want to mention is, is the fact that we have Time magazine that also came here and said that, oh, Sierra Leone is open for tourism, for business, and they had a drone shot showing the beautiful sunset, which we have. But our beach is dirty. It's completely dirty. I would like it to be clean, which is why I want to admit that there's a problem so we can fix it. But what this government has been is a masquerade of this idyllic Sierra Leone and these policies and these things that they've done, how they're attracting these stories to come by having these newspapers write about them the way they want to be written about. Instead of saying that, listen, this place is beautiful. We can make it work, but here are the things we need to do that we haven't done. So there's no responsibility at all from the government. Of recent, mm -hmm. a young woman who is a blogger, Zainab Sharif, was arrested and held in prison for having an opinion about the government. You know, and yet they say this is a, a democracy or a nascent one, at least. We don't even, we're not even there because they put a cyber law in place since after the protest. They put a cyber crime law in place. Now, a cyber crime law is usually to prevent people from, uh, you know, uh, st people stealing your, your private information online, hacking into things and all of this stuff. But they've left it open that the ministers of particularly information can decide what the crime is if you do something online. So if you see online, oh, this is, we want to know what happened to the funds that were given to so-so-and-so to do so-so-and-so, then the minister can determine that that is inciting violence, that's a cybercrime, and they'll just arrest you. And the burden of proof is on you who they arrest, not them who've arrested you for something. So they arrest, they've arrested a few uh, uh, activists like that, you know? Can and can you talk about the um, the opposition and and what they're talking about? What they um, talk about the election specifically? So um, it's the SLPP and the APC, um, and what is the APC saying they will do differently, or what it what is the kind of public dialogue around if there is a change, what will happen? Well, the thing is, our population is very desperate, and so they often tend to flock. So basically, the political climate here is this. Election is coming very near. Now, all the political parties have free t-shirts. They have dance parties and they feed people, give them money, food. This is the policy now they're explaining. And they say, well, we have this policy that's amazing. And so the APC is basically saying that we will do different because everybody knows that this guy haven't done good in the last five years. So when we come in, we're gonna do things different. We are the hope because everybody's desperate. But right now there's party going on. So everybody's forgotten what they're really, who they're really, uh, should, how they should think about voting, right? So the APC is not saying anything interesting. So the opposition party is weak, to be honest. 
-hmm. But yet the guys that are contending that already have the power are also not saying anything different. They've not done anything really different, you know? Mm -hmm. So then the question is now like, well, who do you vote for? Who is presenting something that's at least ex slightly extraordinary? Or if not, even mediocre. We can go with mediocre, you know? <laughs> Nobody's really presenting anything. At least in my intelligent, critical opinion, people can see otherwise because they've gotten a new T-shirt. Now, even to the point that yesterday I was talking, and this is a fact, where the SFPP is basically going to markets and saying to people, if you're a registered SFPP party member, which is that you have a registration card, they will give you 1 million leons. So, and, they, and people are running home to go get their, their cards to come and show that they are so they can get 1 million leons. First of all, I think that's illegal. It sounds like bribery towards an election, but they're doing that openly and nobody's yeah. questioning that. You know, yeah. and so basically, as we lead towards election, what has been what's been happening more is more of them chastising the other side that hasn't had power, and them saying that we're going to continue on our gains. But then people will say, "Well, what gains?" Right. So that's been the dialogue, basically. Like, oh, we're going to do better. Yeah. Mm. Could you talk a bit about? Yeah, I mean, basically, what you're describing is that there's very little to distinguish the ruling party and the opposition. Uh, both ideologically, as far as their policy content, and so on. But earlier, you alluded to uh, where political divides in Sierra Leone are salient, which is on ethno on an ethno regional basis. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and and how you know how uh, pronounced are these divides, or is it something that's uh, fanned and, and played up by uh, the political elites themselves? Well, these are very pronounced, particularly in the in the countryside, right? Where if you go to the areas that I'm from in the south, even though people would admit, if I talk to them after a while in the languages we all speak, they will say, yes, they haven't really done well, but what can you do? They are our people. We still have to vote for them. This is the sentiment that I've, I heard. I was just up country and I tried to speak to people, be like, you know, your vote, you voting for people who are going to be in for five years. So you're not going to blame anybody if you vote them in and they come and they continue more of the same, you know, where your life is just going to go backwards. You're not going to have access to certain opportunities. You know, your, you know, your salary is going to be equal to buying a bag of rice, which is all that you can afford. And then you don't have anything. They'd be like, yeah, but they are our people. We have to vote for them, you know. So the politicians know this. So they often go back to that allegiance that old allegiance has been fed into people through paramount chiefs, through section chiefs, that basically tell their people, this is what you vote. So in the countryside, this is how everybody runs it, whether it's the APC or the SFPP, this is how they run it. They go to these places. And also you can, you can, you can buy people by just having a big party at a field, football field, having food for two days and party and DJ stuff. And they'd be like, oh, this is our guy. So they're doing those things as well. Now, when you come into the capital city more, that's when it becomes a little bit interesting because you have people who are more, a little bit more complex. They are trying to ask a few more questions because whatever government does something, it impacts them quicker and directly before it goes to the countryside. So they're a little bit slightly more reflective. But we don't have a very, I hate to say, but we don't have a very politically intelligent uh, population to really see through some of these nonsenses, you know? So everybody's basically still saying that. So yes, you have the allegiance is completely tribal to a, lot, to a large extent. And as we go closer, it's more, they start to rub it in even more, right? To show more that, yeah, we are, we are these people. And then that's when somebody like me become an outcast 
because I'm saying that well, yes, I am mainly, but I am not with you guys. I, I, I wanted to. <laughs> I wanted to ask specific. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because I don't, I don't know if people who aren't Sierra Leonean understand um, what it means to kind of be. So so basically, there's you know we had the war. There was people who stayed in the war, and then throughout the time, you know, there's people who came back slowly, and there was this divide between this almost classified divide between people who'd been abroad and people who stayed. And that's related to many things such as mobility, opportunity, and, and you yourself as someone who spent many years abroad and, and returned. Um, do you think that is also a factor, one, in your perspective? Has that colored your, your critique um, of, like, you know, you've been to places that, quote unquote, have some of the infrastructural things, both social infrastructure and um, economic infrastructure that function, so it gives you that knowledge is like things could be this way, but then is there also a backlash within people who have been there longer and say, well, he's just, you know, this like JC that like, with opinions. Yeah, yeah JC just come. It means that you just came back, you know. Yeah. My response to that has always been like, first of all, I, I'm from this country. I'm from the village in this country. So no matter how far I go, when I come back, I'm still that village where I'm not from the campus. Mm -hmm. So I can never be just a just scam guy, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but this this is very important. The point that you made in terms of exposure to other uh, places that have certain uh, uh, behavior in society, certain uh, economic uh, development that is true, that have um, certain ways of people defend. And, 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 and sort of uh, obtain their rights and the way they even go about that dialogue, where there's dialogue. And these are other African countries that I'm speaking about, not necessarily in the West, right? So I've been, for example, before I came, I, I, I went to live in the United States. I spent a lot of time in South Africa and it was right after appetite. So I learned a lot about what it meant to be black, to be in that space and all of those things. So yes, I come with all of these things. But this is not to say you need to step out to be able to have this critical understanding of society. Yes, some people did and it added. But even when I was a kid here, I saw uh, how this was being played out. Maybe I didn't have the language or the way to express myself through those, to, to express those things properly. But having been abroad and having lived in other places, I developed a language and a way to talk about it. But the inequity has always been there and it's always been felt by a lot of people. They don't know how to express it, but they always know. Now, this generation, the Gen Z, or high, you know, and, and people of, of this who are young now have access to the internet the way we didn't before. So information is coming to them on a daily basis from what's going on in Kenya, in Rwanda, in Senegal, in Nigeria. They see what's going on in other African countries. They see how people are prospering, moving forward in the arts, in, in, in agriculture, in private businesses that are developed by people who are from there. Whereas here, none of those things are available. So they begin to look at things differently. So they know what's going on. The only difference is that they don't have a space to, 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 to raise those concerns. They are mm -hmm. not even allowed. And for some of us who are adamant and demand to be heard and go to these places where then what is then used is the fact that Oh, it's because you've lived abroad that you come with all these, mm -hmm. these things. 
Mm-hmm. You know, you're saying these things because you've lived in this place, you think it's the same. No, it's not the same. It's, 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 I'm not saying it's the same, but I'm saying that if you praise yourself as a government that's moving towards a democratic society, it comes with certain responsibilities. If you want this country to move forward, it comes with certain responsibilities. You know, when our president was interviewed recently about the LGBTQ people in, in, in the world, generally in Sierra Leone, he said, oh, it's because they have access to internet and they're watching too much internet. That's why they think they are who they are, you know. Can you imagine? This is 2023. And now this is a fellow who's talking about radical inclusion and the progressive government. He can't even, he doesn't even have the capacity to understand that there are people who have been hiding, who can be themselves because of this type of behavior, this type of thinking, right? And this is the person who's saying that he wants to build a progressive Syria in which you vote for him. And this was his response to an international journalist. When he asked him the question about that, he says that this is because of the influence of the internet. I mean, I'm just laying that out to you for you guys to soak it in a little bit. You know, this is the nature of the place that we live in, where they are saying one thing, they are radical, they are inclusive, they are progressive, they are building the country, but yet we don't see it. Even in their rhetoric, they give themselves away by saying that, you know, we are this, we are not, you know. How can we compete globally if we think in this sort of ways, you know? If we don't even know how to build an economic policy that benefits everybody, not just the ministers. When we Speaking we do, that, yeah. uh, remind me asking, um, you know, we, we touched on on the cost of living protests of, of last year. And I'm, I'm wondering about it, it does seem to be that by force of circumstance. And as you acknowledged at the beginning, this is not a pattern that's unique to Sierra Leone. It's the case everywhere, Senegal, Kenya, South Africa, large swaths of the continent where simply the extent of economic hardship is just so immense uh, that people people can barely make ends meet, as you were describing um, about the, the power of, of currency uh, being worth less and less on a daily basis. Um, what do you think the direction of that discontent, where, where might it go? Um, is it something that can be organized or, or harnessed politically or... You know, are things still not yet at that stage where it might result in a political outcome? Because, you know, we were discussing uh, what what is the alternative for for someone who is frustrated with the SLPP and the APC? You know, where do they find their political home? Uh, are people looking for one, or do they check out of the system entirely if the options um, are dissatisfying? Well, often when the options are dissatisfying as they are, very much so here, people usually look for the, um, the opposition party. That's first the, the, the natural sort of impetus, right? But then they are, they are also, you look at them and be like, okay, these guys coming, they cannot be the same or even worse, right? So then, and this is not to say the guys at the inn are better. That's nowhere near there, you know? So, um, and then the next thing is that you look at other parties that are not the two political parties that have always run this country, and you see that most of them have been disbanded and their leaders are flocking to what they will consider the winning side, right? And then the SFPP, for example, is welcoming and say that people have defected from APC, from the, you know, the other lesser political parties have come to them, and then they're basically saying that, oh, you see, we're doing so well, that's why they're coming to us. And then the questions that then the young people are asking that I'm asking too is that, first of all, if we have almost 17 days towards election and you're leaving your own political party, I question your loyalty already to begin with because you're varying that way because you think, oh, these guys may win. 
so I can have access to the money and the corruption that goes with it. That's what you're doing. But if you're accepting them, it also says something about your judgment as a political party that you can just accept anybody who abscond because then you want to be a political party that runs a country where there's no opposition, which is undemocratic. You mm -hmm. want to have an active opposition. So this is what they don't realize, the message they're sending. So that's what people do. And then for young people, the latter part, which is, I think, what is happening everywhere on the African continent, they begin to look for, for ways to leave this country. Mm -hmm. Most of the young people you speak to, they want to get out. Because for them, living here is death because you don't have access to anything. Everything is politicized. Opportunities are. Even the arts, they're trying to politicize it. Where if you're not with them, then they make all certain blockades. It's happened to me so that you can have access to practice your craft in the country because you're not saying that you love them. And which is, I guess, for being an artist, I'm for the people. I'm not for any political party that comes and goes, you know, because these are not the people that I write for, uh, that I want to speak for. But yet they will create barriers and hindrances for you. They make life difficult for you if you don't do that, if you're an artist that doesn't go. So everything is politicized. Even, like I was saying, resources are politicized. Where you live, how much power you get is based on where whoever is in power lives, you know, <laughs> even though you pay your bill. So even if you have money in Sierra Leone, you will suffer just because everything is politicized. In fact, today I'm coming from a court. I, I have a court case that I've been trying to go to for over six months now. I haven't had one hearing. Every time the judge doesn't show up and he says, oh, I have a conference. That's why. But didn't you know you had a conference two days ago to, to agree on a date, on a time, specific time, you know? And the lawyers, they say, oh, be patient, be patient. So there's a spy, you know, so nothing works. Everything is politicized. Now, if you know somebody in the political party, they would be like, hey, fast forward that guy's case. And that happens. So nothing works. The legal system doesn't work. There's no rule of law, particularly that works. Everything is collapsing, but yet they're pretending that it's working, right? So that's the, that's the problem. So most young people just want out. They want to leave because they realize that, listen, we can't form a political party because they're not going to give us the space to do so. They wouldn't even allow us to have an opinion about what we feel and think about what they're doing. So how do we mobilize to form a political party? It's impossible. So most I, of them are leaving. You know? I, get, I get a text every month or so that one of my people that I kind of, one of the family members of somebody that I send money to, um, the young boy, 18, 19, is like, oh, I'm in Guinea. Oh, I'm in Gambia. Oh, I mean, it's, and it's funny. I'm like, man, like, he's like, and, but he gets there and he's like, there's no work here. There's no work there. Like, and it just seems he, I mean, I'm just talking about this one specific individual, but he is on this constant, he's got the ECOWAS passport, so he can cross borders, but he's just on this perpetual ping pong through different capital cities looking for work and there's nothing, you know, and my fear in sending this family money, I, I, I don't want to say too much, but my fear is, you know, one day he's going to, they're going to be like, he's on a boat to Europe or he's on trying to get to Canary Islands, you know, and, yes. um, you know, it, it is a rough situation for young people. I guess that makes you wonder, I know that the structural conditions are quite different globally, um, you know, than in the 80s. But, you know, and for the past whatever, 20 something years, we've been saying, you know, Sierra Leone is for peace. We don't want conflict, blah, blah, blah. But 
and maybe this is not something people like to talk about, but is there a point where the where the bottom drops out of the bucket one more time? It is highly possible, which is why the protest became what it became. That was a small indication of that. Mm -hmm. Because you push people to the wall too much, at some point they're going to react. Mm -hmm. They will have no choice. And if these countries, these opportunities that this young man you're talking about hopping around looking for can be created for them here. Mm -hmm. If we are not politicizing everything and we are not trying to actually make sure resources are not available to any people. Now, let's let's put this in context. Sierra Leone is the bottom 10 poorest countries. I think we're even number two, right? And the other countries that are in line with us are countries that don't have any functionality whatsoever, like they don't even have governments. And we're still as poor as they are. Now, that's the thing. But then you look at how well our ministers and people in government are doing. Mm-hmm. They are, they are building $1 million houses, US dollars. This is supposed to be the poorest country. So the salary of an average minister is nowhere between $2.5 to $3,000 a month. A guy comes in power within three, four months, he's buying land as $400,000, building a million dollars. And you're wondering to yourself, well, how is he getting the money? And because it's a small country which lives with our proximity, you know that, but you can see it. So you can see it. So when we're talking about all this economic crisis that's going on globally, it's affecting the population. But the people that are working for us in this very, very poor country are doing so remarkably well. So then you begin to wonder, well, is it bad for all of us? Or is it, are they just making it sure it's bad for us so that they can continue to thrive, right? Yeah. At the expense of all of us, right? Like, for example, the parliament is working on putting... Uh, a thing together, like a bill together for the gov- for the president to sign that says that when they leave power, they should have like a retirement plan where they get paid something like fifty thousand dollars and subsequent amount of thousands of dollars every every month for doing what? When they were in power, they did not do anything. So they are so good at crafting that law, but when they craft a law that applies to citizens, they don't even read it at times. Shamefully, we had, for example, they were trying to put in laws about what you can bring in the country. And somebody literally wrote in the bill that was passed in parliament, which shows that nobody cares or nobody's reading, that says you can only bring a certain milliliters of toilet water in the country. Somebody did not translate eau de toilette in French. <laughs> they really said toilet water. No, but these things are laughable. We laugh, but then it thinks of you. If this passed, all these amazing people who are supposedly in government, who are thinkers, went to these Ivy League schools, so none of them is reading this and catching it until it's publicly is publicized for us to read and say seriously so this is the amount of nonsense so this is the same masquerade this is the same way they speak so now most young people when these things are not happening they're gonna go but at some point this thing may self-destruct and you cannot blame people because they would not know how to do anything they would not they would, the only reason that will be left is that they'll be forced just as anybody anywhere to react differently. I don't want that because I went through the war. I know, which is why I'm very much outside outspoken about what they're doing, making sure people see what they're doing so that we understand that we, they work for us. It's not the other way around, which they have forgotten. Now, last point I'll make on this particular one, what they're doing with this again, this fear that the world has of Sierra Leone going back into war, because you're a post-war country, everything we do must be peaceful. They're basically taking away our rights so that there's no possibility that we would do that. But that also doesn't work. For example, election is coming. 
soon enough. But since it started, all the international communities, uh, embassies here have been pushing this agenda of how they want a peaceful election. Yes, we want a peaceful election, but it cannot be at the expense of us not having a freedom of speech. That is already violent. So th there's That's a complicity. There's a complicity exactly. from, yeah. Yeah, it's saying that what we do with democracy. <laughs> yes, yeah, there's a democracy, but we don't want you to say anything. God forbid people gain a consciousness <laughs> and they act differently. So don't say anything because we want a peaceful election. It's almost oxymoron, right? It's like, really? So we can't say anything. We just should like quietly just wait, not say anything. And then you're saying that we're moving towards a democratic, a progressive state where we can. We should be having debates. The two presidential candidates should have a debate right now so we know what truly their policies are. They are not doing that. They are busy dancing and giving people free T-shirts. Mm. And yet we should vote on that, you know? <laughs> yeah. I saw, I saw that the, the Political Parties Regulations Committee banned street rallies. Um, yes. And the reason they gave is that, you know, they tend to degenerate into violence, which, you know, it's a glaring restriction on freedom of movement. And it just seems like there's, as you say, there's all of these... Uh, restrictions on democratic rights and freedoms in the name of peace, order, security. And I guess what I want to know is, you know, how come under under BIO it's just been so quick, the, the extent to which these rights and freedoms are being being rolled back? And and related to that is, is how much should we um, fret and worry about the voting system changing and like what does that actually mean concretely um because i know it was originally a constituency based first past the post system and now it's a district block proportional representation system and some people are worried that's bad for small political parties and it only entrenches the power of the slpp uh basically uh, what was the rationale behind changing the the voting system uh, just before this election well, first of all, there was no discussion with the public to see what the public wanted, really. So that already lies the problem, right? <laughs> this was not a, a national debate to say, okay, which way should we, what do we agree on? Because if it was, people would have said no, right? Because when you do this again, like I said, we go to the tribal lines again. SAPP knows very well that if you vote the way they're going to vote, it's entrenching that, then the paramount chief, the chiefs in that, we're going to make sure the people vote for them the way they want. You know, for example, we have all the electoral offices that are coming from abroad, various European countries and the United States to observe the election. They're not going to be able to see what's coming. They don't speak the language. They don't know how to really observe what's going on. Also, election has been pushed all the way to June 24th, which is when the rains are going to be a little heavy. So some places you're not even going to be able to get to. All the tactics have been laid out in front of them, but they don't even know how to see it. You know, but yet they are the ones who are coming to decide that this is going to be free and fair. No, the system is already, uh, it's not been free and fair because we've not been allowed to be part of it as a population to determine how we vote to begin with, how we're represented. You know, uh, we young people don't want to be represented by these chiefs, this archaic system anymore that mm -hmm. sort of they don't because they have their own ways they want to be in the world. They want to be like any other young person anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. They have their own sets of values that are beyond the borders of Sierra Leone. Mm -hmm. But those things are not put into place when people are thinking about the policies put in place, even how people vote. You know, 
let's talk about voting also. We have a voter uh, ID card that came out. I don't have one next to me right now, but <laughs> and this is focus, I can't really show you, you know. But we had, um, uh, every time we have to vote in Sierra Leone, there's always this thing where we have to have new voter ID card to vote during every presidential election and things like that, which first of all, I think is a very interesting run for corruption and for stealing money because we already have driver's license, Sierra Leone. We have ECOWAS driver's license. We have passports. We have national IDs. These already says you're over 18, you're eligible to vote. You don't need to come up with a new voter card just to vote for that election, you know? <laughs> so then they cut this budget out to do that. And then they go and print these things that then come. This last one is the worst Sierra Leone has ever seen. It's so flimsy. It's like somebody basically uh, had a black and white copier and they did it in their living room and cut it. I'm serious. But then what was the budget for it? Probably something like super exorbitant for like these. Yes, the <laughs> money was millions of dollars. Then they said they had to do it in Europe and this company printed it. So basically, when you take your ID card, the, the, the idea of having an ID card is to identify yourself. That's the first rule of it, right? You can't see yourself. It's all black. It's black and white. Like people are even making jokes. If you want to know black is beautiful, go pick up your voter ID card, you know, because you don't see yourself. <laughs> and, and for some of us, I had, I had locks and my locks was up that day. That's the only way I could decide that it was me. I'd be like, okay, that kind of looks like the locks is, you know. So you don't know. Some people's date of birth were changed, either down or up. So which doesn't correspond with the other ID cards that they have. And then when the ID card came out and the population was saying that, the reason why I'm making this point, it may seem petty, but the reason why I'm bringing it up is this, is the integrity of the current administration that I'm putting, uh, I'm analyzing. When the, it came out, everybody had it in their hand and the whole country, whether it's an SLPP person or APC person said, this is terrible. The government said, no, it's the best you've ever had. We had the evidence in our hand and they still argue that it was better. Well, we are lying. Right, and, and they the said also, security. <laughs> yeah, they said you have security features. So this is 2023. Everybody has a mobile phone that can scan a barcode. You scan the stuff; it doesn't take you anywhere. So then people started thinking again. Well, how do we believe these guys? Because when we have the evidence of something that they have done, instead of just apologizing and saying, you know what, maybe we trusted the wrong person that we gave this um, this contract to and they gave us a bad job, we will not do that again with them. They didn't. If these guys were smart, all the president would have done is to say that, listen, my people don't deserve this type of ID card to vote for a critical election that's coming on, but we'll get to the bottom. But since we're so close to election now, we will not be able to undo this, but I'm sorry that this is how this turned out. None of that. There was, they were adamant, the callousness and how adamant they are to say that this is good. This is the best that you've ever had, you know? And so you began to wonder, okay, well, and even some of us said, well, actually, if you say it's a company that did you wrong, that, that gave you this product that's terrible, why can't you publicize the, the company's name? So make sure that nobody ever gives them contract. Oh, they'll be like, oh, we'll get back to you on that. It's because they printed it themselves here. That's what it is. And they don't want to admit to that. And they don't want to admit that they made. And also, that also questions what kind of decision 
you're making for a country. If you can get an ID card right, why should we trust you to run this country for five more years? Do you understand? Like, we all have been to university high schools. You want to make an ID for a party something, you go to the Kinkos, whenever they used to exist, right? And somebody gets, gives you the two possibilities, right? You look at one and they say, okay, this one. I don't think anybody did that even, <laughs> right? Because when you look at the stuff, so you begin to say, well, what kind of people? And these are the questions that really are at the heart of the kind of people we have in power. What they're willing to say to publicly so that they remain, uh, that they're doing well, as opposed to what they deliver. And this was a delivery for us. We've had ID cards to vote right after war that had better quality, where the infrastructure of this country had completely collapsed in terms of even being able to get access to the, to the, to the outside world, to get contracts to do something when it was complete zero. The ID card was better than now. You see what I mean? So you begin to, 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 to think that, well, these people, don't, they don't care about anybody but themselves. And again, this education thing that they're flying is their flagship. So basically, what they are, one of the flagships of this administration is that how they've built this education system that's working, but teachers are not paid well. We still have a country that has two times people go to school during the day. Some kids go in the morning to about 12, 1, and some people go from 1 to about 4. You know how that came in place? That's the, that was a, a policy that was put in place during the war because the population had moved to Freetown so much that the schools could not take everybody to come to school. Well, why is that still in place? Nobody has this question. Why is that still in place if we're making this improvement? And also all these ministers and that says that they are, and even the president that says that they're building the school system, do we have three good schools in this country where they can send their children to because they built the system so well? No, their children go to private school. I know because my children go to private school because I don't want them to regress. So their children go to private school and yet they say that they have this amazing education revolutionary system, but their children don't go to any of them. <laughs> How do you explain that to me? You know, at least by now, I'm not saying that they would have done every school in the country. They should at least be able to show us five, six schools that are exemplary, right? That we can send our kids to, that are public schools. There's no... Mm. So maybe, maybe I don't know. You know, so at every you... level. They... Sorry, I just, I just wanted to ask Ishmael, and I don't know if, if Boima has, has maybe a, a, a closing question, but I mean, the, the, the picture you've painted is, is very dire um, and bleak. Uh, but I wonder, I mean, are there, are there any places to look at for, for hope, and not hope just as a as a kind of, you know, source of, of comfort, um, but like, you know, what- what Build on. Yeah, to build on, exactly. To build on and primarily to build on, on politically uh, towards uh, imagining uh, a, a reorganization of, of society in Sierra Leone where, you know, the well-being of the people is, is put before the enrichment of the powerful and, and politicians. Um, are we? I mean, because we, we as as we've been describing, bro, it's almost like we're 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 approaching uh, a cliff where you know yes. things the bottom might drop out of the bucket. But you know, is might that be what Sierra Leone needs? Not to say you know all our war and conflict, but at least in the sense that you know the people are are fed up um, and might start to express that with without fear um, and and with determination. 
the people are indeed fed up. And I think possibly the SAP will win. And because it will be their last term, if they've already done these errors in their first term, who's to say what's going to happen? So it may end up that a lot of people just decide to, 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 to flee this country, to go elsewhere, particularly those that are very intelligent that could be actually move this country forward will probably leave because they will feel like there's, you know, there's nothing for them, you know? Um, and and the, the opposition party, even if they win, I don't think maybe the only reason what they could do is that for the first time they will try to do some things to show that they're different before they regress back into their old self again. That's one way of looking at that. But what I'm trying to say, I think what needs to happen in Sierra Leone is that the international community, since we're an aid-driven country, we get money practically to do everything in this country from the outside, the World Bank. It's before they give this money, maybe they put stricter conditions on Sierra Leone in terms of what the principles of democracy are, integrity, the rights of people, freedom of speech. You know, all of these things that they hold there, they, they earmark it with this sort of money and say, like, we cannot give you this money unless if we see that these things happen. And also for them, when they come to this country and try to evaluate what is happening, they don't just talk to the government. I mean, it's simple. Talk to the people. And I'm not talking about the civil society that the government puts together because there's that, that it preps, talks, and gives them the mouthpiece. But just step outside of the, the program that the government sets for you and talk to people. Talk to young people and see. And then put those conditions too. That's the only way they're going to behave in the next term. By holding back some of the monies that's been allowed to say, we can't give it until certain situations have improved in your citizenry for us to be able to even disburse those funds. That's what's going to happen. If that happens, it will change. Otherwise, it's going to continue to be worse. And I don't know what would happen after that. Because that's already happened. The international community somehow, as you said earlier, is so worried about this election being violent that they're basically asking people to forego their rights, freedom to gather, uh, to move around, to express ideas, so that we can have a peaceful election. But, but so basically, we shouldn't have an election. They should just continue ruling. Because, I mean, that, that's basically what you're asking people to do, you know? And I think that's the, that's the part that I think can be hopeful. Because I think if we call to task these governments or these organizations that are coming from countries that hold these principles so there and these rights so there to them, then they should hold it there for us too. And lastly, how, what I want to say is the fact that let's stop belittling African countries and people when we always hope that they should take the bare minimum. They should be, they should be satisfied with the bare, barest of things, you know. Oh, you know, Sierra Leone hasn't gone forward, but infant mortality rate has increased a little bit. That's something to be hopeful for. No, it's not something to be hopeful for. We could do much better than that. We're always giving these things where we have to settle for the least possible thing. You know, I remember when I was working for the Clinton Global Initiative, it was the same thing. When they think about African countries, they say that, oh, yeah, well, he's a graduate from primary school, so he should be able to lead his country. And I'm like, seriously? You know, that's the standard for us. And then you expect these outcomes that are so remarkable, right? But that's the standard you're setting. It's not possible. So we should stop doing those things. You know, but we have to confront these things and the media has to also help us because they're, they're buying into the PR machines of these autocrats and dictators that are information and how they're able to trick them into seeing that they're doing so well and speak that language and then they go out and say, this is what's going on. And we on the ground saying, well, seriously? So we begin to defend 
what is actually happening on the ground because they are unwilling to see it and they don't have the proclivity to see it. You know, so I think this, these are the areas of hope for me that that happens. Some of the funding gets held back until certain improvements happen in certain sectors of society. I think that's that's the perfect note to to conclude on the the call to have higher expectations and and not to to get caught up in a cycle of diminishing expectations. Uh, Ishmael, thank you so much for coming to the program. Boima, yep. thank you as much as well. Thank you. Thanks.